We'll actually come out of this thing stronger. Moments like this reset. It'll take a while. People will calm down. People are, I don't want to be associated with that. This is a group within a group. And what this does, it, there'll be a rallying effect for a while where the country says we're better than this. And Biden will help that, right? Yeah, totally. He'll be a, maybe the best person to have, right? I mean, how bad can you get it, Joe Biden? That was Senator Lindsey Graham talking to New York Times reporter Jonathan Martin on the afternoon of January 6, 2021 reaffirming what many Republicans were thinking that day about the riot that Donald Trump had just unleashed upon the U.S. Capitol, and expressing hope that the new Democratic president, Joe Biden, could lower the temperature and bring the country together. But as Martin and his Times colleague Alex Burns document in their new book, This Too Shall Pass, that sentiment among most GOP lawmakers, Graham prominent among them, didn't last long. And Graham's prognosis that the trauma of January 6th would lead to greater national unity couldn't have been more wrong. The United States, according to Martin and Burns, is facing a political emergency with two parties who, the authors write, are not merely adversaries but enemies in a domestic cold war that had started to run hot. How hot can it get? And is there any way at this point to cool things down? We'll ask Martin and Burns on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So we're all used to, by this point, the flip-flops of Lindsey Graham, well-documented over many, many years. But it is still pretty striking to hear one more Republican lawmaker, senior Republican lawmaker, expressing these views on January 6th that what happened was awful, that Donald Trump is responsible, that Joe Biden can possibly bring the country together, words we have not heard from Graham and others who were expressing that that day since. Yeah. What I think is actual conviction. I mean, this is how they reacted in the moment. I think they truly believed it. But in almost every case, you know, sort of sacrificed at the altar of naked ambition Um, and and, and, political political opportunism. But I I think maybe fear of their own constituents and fear of their own. Okay, but but the reason I mentioned naked ambition is because I think in many ways, uh, you know, the most kind of you know, the most sort of uh, the baldly craven uh, example, craven example <laughs> is uh, Kevin McCarthy, who in that moment and in the days after the assault uh, on the Capitol was said on tape. This is these are recordings that uh, these two New York Times reporters got. And, and we all have heard now that he was going to tell uh, Trump that he needed to resign because if he didn't resign, um, he would be impeached. He believed at the time that he would be convicted 
and that this was a grave crisis in this country and his conduct was appalling. He even invoked in in conversation the 25th Amendment. Now, he said he didn't think that would work because they couldn't actually do it fast enough. So the problem with the 25th Amendment was that uh, it shouldn't, it's not that it it shouldn't be invoked. The problem with it was it wouldn't get rid of Trump quickly enough. And where does the ambition come in? Uh, now he's completely flip-flopped on this. He's going to fundraisers for him. He's telling them that this he absolutely— This week, he was in Dallas this week, this week with he's telling Trump them for that, a fundraiser. You know, yeah. He absolutely will support him if, if he's the Republican nominee in, in 2024. Why? Because he wants to be Speaker of the House. It's, his, it's been his dream since he was like 12 years old. And nothing is more important to him than getting that job. And, you know, it's, um, it's shocking. I mean, we shouldn't be shocked, but we shouldn't be shocked at this point. But we should point out that we are speaking on Thursday, the day the January 6th committee has subpoenaed Kevin McCarthy and four other Republican lawmakers, including Jim Jordan, uh, Mo Brooks, Scott Perry, Andrew Biggs. And I can't see them complying. I think what's likely to happen is they'll just say, no way. Uh, And then, you know, up to the January 6th committee, are they really going to refer this to the Justice Department for potential criminal prosecution? And back to the point that you made at the beginning, Mike, which is that we've got parties that regard themselves not as opponents, but as enemies now. We can't lose sight of the fact that McCarthy and Brooks and many of the people who've been subpoenaed are essentially threatening to do the same to the Democrats as soon as they take over, were they to win the majority at, at the end of this election. So expect or get ready to a series of Republican led investigations into, I suppose, whether or not AOC supports you know, Black Lives Matter or a just kind of a number of inquiries into their yeah. opponents. And of course, get ready for the impeachment of Joe Biden. Right, right. Well, OK, that I think is probably a given. There'll certainly be impeachment resolutions. But on the in Republican investigations, if they win control of the House and subpoenas to Democratic lawmakers, look, I mean, they're going to they're going to sabotage that themselves when they refuse to comply with the January 6th committee subpoena. So they will have set the precedent for the Democrats to say, sorry, (laughs) you know, no way when the Republican committees, controlled committees start. Although I did note that that Steny Hoyer uh, today did today on Thursday did say, well, you know, if if I'm subpoenaed, I'll cooperate. I've got nothing to hide. So (laughs) they'll throw that back against him. I I don't think Hoyer is going to be their target yeah. for the Republicans. He's not he's yeah. not the one they want to go after. But anyway, it is interesting. I mean, you know, they may end up, you know, will end up with this sort of standoff. And, you know, the Republican members, McCarthy first and foremost, won't show up. And, you know, he will have laid the groundwork for Democrats to ignore Republican subpoenas, which, you know, Victoria, as a former congressional staffer, will be one more nail in the coffin of congressional oversight because the precedent for just ignoring congressional subpoenas will at that point be well established. 
Yeah, I mean, what 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 is the January sixth uh, committee going to do? Actually, go to court and try to enforce the subpoena? I, I mean, it's it they they don't even have close to the amount of time that it would take to enforce the subpoena. Right. Yeah. So it's just it's just all kind of you know theater. Uh, theater. Well, they've got them. Well, speaking of theater, they, they've got them on tape. They're starting these primetime hearings on June 9th. They ought to just, you know, put his name up there on the felt-covered table in the hearing room and play his tape. The old empty chair trick, right? Yeah. <laughs> the empty yeah. chair trick. And play and play the tapes. And I'm sure we'll hear those tapes during those those hearings. I am those are coming up soon. I, I am uh, gonna be interested to see what kind of stagecraft there's gonna be, whether there'll be any witnesses that we don't know about. I, I think it's gonna be the fact that they are doing some of them in prime time suggests to me that there is there are going to be some surprises, some bombshells, and, and a fair amount of drama. I have a sneaking suspicion that these uh, two New York Times reporters that we're about to interview may have other relevant tapes when these hearings begin. Yeah. Well, um, good segue to point out that we do have you know Jonathan Morton and Alex, Alex Burns, who've written this really terrific book, This Will Not Pass, which is sort of an, a really deep dive excavation of our dysfunctional politics uh, at this moment. And it captures it in all its many facets, yeah. um, not just on the Republican side and the Trump side, but on the Democrats as well. So there's a lot to talk to them about. So let's get to it. Okay, we've now got with us Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns of the New York Times and co-authors of the new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Jonathan and Alex, welcome to Skullduggery. So uh, congrats on the book. It's uh, a great read, awesome reporting, and congrats on the rollout strategy with these tapes. (laughs) You know, uh, it's kind of hard to beat when you've got tapes showing all these comments that people like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham uh, were saying about the alarm they had over January 6th on that day. And then you know, obviously changing their tune very quickly. The message from this, the takeaway that people have had from this is that it shows Trump's still iron grip on the Republican Party. And yet, last night in Nebraska, his candidate, uh, Charlie Herbster, for uh, governor gets shellacked. Yes, he won in West Virginia on a congressional race, but it looks like he's... um, could well uh, suffer another big loss in the Georgia gubernatorial primary. So uh, let's start out with that. Is it really, I mean, can we say at this point that Trump still controls and dominates the Republican Party when, at least in some cases, Republican voters are rejecting his choices? Maybe both things can be true, uh, Michael. I mean, I think Trump can be the dominant figure in the Republican Party have the firmest grip on the grassroots of the party and be the most formidable candidate for president in 24 for them. But he can still also like lose some primaries. I mean, he's not capable of simply waving a wand uh, state by state or district by district and ensuring victory of every one of his candidates. Now, 
That said, he does help these candidates. You look at Ohio earlier in the month, J.D. Vance was not going to win that primary in all likelihood until Trump intervened on his behalf. I don't think Herbster in Nebraska would have been nearly as competitive as he was last night if Trump hadn't endorsed him in the first place or stood by Herbster after he faced multiple allegations of sexual impropriety. And obviously, I think Mooney in West Virginia would have had a difficult time running without Trump's blessing against a, a, a fellow member of the House who had the support of um, of a lot of people in that state, including the sitting governor. So I guess I just think both things can be true, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I would just, you know, look, I, I, I don't dispute anything you just said. On the other hand, I think there is clearly an interest on the part of the Democrats to play up the role Trump has over uh, the Republican Party and to some extent the media as well, because you know, let's face it, Trump sells. Trump still pulls in big ratings for not just the Fox crowd, but for the MSNBC yeah. and CNN crowd as well. So I, I just, you know, Alex, I want to hear your take on this. You know, is there a danger of perhaps overstating Trump's power here? I think there's a, a real, I think there are very real reasons to question his sort of direct operational control uh, over the Republican Party that, you know, we depict him in the book as a strong man or an aspiring a strong man. I think a lot of people uh, have spoken uh, about him as uh, an authoritarian or would be authoritarian. Um, but what Trump doesn't have that a lot of strong men and authoritarians have is a really a sophisticated mechanical grasp of the way uh, political institutions uh, and government work. And so he has never built the kind of elaborate infrastructure that he would need in order to be able to reach into any congressional district in the country and sort of Politburo style say, this guy's the candidate and this guy will never work in this town again. Um, and I think that that's what you see uh, on display in a race like uh, Nebraska. What you also uh, see in a, a place like Nebraska is that there's no particular appetite for an anti-Trump Republican, right? And that's where I think uh, his influence over the party can't be overstated, that he may not be picking and choosing uh, individual winners and losers with the sort of flawless record that he uh, claims to have, but he does set uh, the cultural tone, the political style, um, you know, at least in some broad strokes, the agenda of the Republican Party. And there's no particular demonstrated constituency for people uh, who say, actually, no, I want to reject all of that uh, and do something pretty different. You mentioned Georgia. He does look like he's going to uh, lose and lose pretty badly uh, in that uh, race for governor of Georgia, where he's backed David Perdue against the incumbent Republican Brian Kemp. But Brian Kemp is a very conservative, very Trumpy Republican who just happens not to have thought that it was within his power to overturn the results of uh, an election in his state, right? But you're not talking about uh, Liz Cheney here. You're certainly not talking about, you know, uh, Christy Whitman or, or, or Bill Weld. Those are former, for, for some of your younger listeners, those are former uh, modern <laughs> Republican governors from the Northeast from, uh, you know, so, sometime in the Jurassic period. That 90s show coming at you from Alex. <laughs> some of us remember Nelson Rockefeller, so <laughs> to go back to the past, right? But, um, 
you guys, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts of the book is when you go down to Mar-a-Lago and uh, interview Trump himself. And it turns every question into, uh, it turns it around into how he got robbed and the election was uh, stolen by, by the Democrats. And his grasp of policy, of uh, of the world, is, you know, uh, almost non-existent. To just tell us about that encounter you had with the guy. Yeah, so th- this is April of 21, so it's pretty soon after he leaves the White House. And what was so striking to both of us is like, two things. One, how it felt like, you know, a sort of exiled leader who's sort of still craving power and sort of hunting for intelligence in the capital, uh, you know, which of the, of the folks in my party are still loyal to me and sort of what's the, the opposition party up to. It sort of just had that air uh, that is so different from what we're used to in American life, where post-presidents typically turn to, you know, paid speaking gigs, lots of golf and, uh, and like, you know, grandkids. Uh, so that was different. What was also striking, guys, was is it fully embracing his old life uh, as a hotelier? I mean, he was greeting this customers at Mar-a-Lago, the members, I should say, at Mar-a-Lago, at the end of the interview. And notably, he schedules the interview for four o'clock. Why? Because you're wrapping up a little bit after five. And what's five o'clock in South Florida? That's early bird time, baby. So you've got these folks coming in for the early bird cocktail and dinner, and they're setting up the chafing dishes and they got, you know, uh, past plates. And so you know, they're coming in and Trump is sort of like, you know, greeting everybody like a, a, a maitre d' who just happened to have nuclear weapons a half an hour ago. Uh, but now he's talking about like shrimp cocktail and prime rib night at Mar-a-Lago. So like that was pretty jarring seeing that. Uh, and then I'll defer to Alex on the actual conversation itself. Well, I mean, it, it was uh, a sort of object in motion stays in motion kind of uh, uh, experience. We're like allowed to stay in motion. He's just going to keep on going on all the ways that he was robbed uh, in 2020. Um, but, uh, you know, fortunately for us, we're not that shy about interrupting. And he was pretty willing to be steered in, in one direction or another. So we were able to get him going on you know, the internal dynamics of his party, his grievances uh, uh, towards Mitch McConnell and, uh, you know, his sort of, uh, we didn't prompt him to go in this direction, but sort of psychoanalysis of uh, Kevin McCarthy and other figures. But look, as you say, uh, his grasp of policy and the details of government is obviously uh, superficial at best. It was a pretty uh, uncomfortable uh, moment in the interview when he's been going off on, you know, uh, this person's week on China, that person's week on China, Elaine Chow, she's uh, sort of captive to the Chinese, which was an astonishing thing to say about a member of his own cabinet. And we asked him, you know, by the way, you know, you're presenting yourself as this tough on China character. Do you think China is uh, committing genocide in Xinjiang, which, uh, you know, is today a major international issue at the time was even closer uh, to the headlines. And there was just no uh, apparent recognition of uh, the issue or the place that uh, he was being asked about. And he, he, said, he said, where? Uh, uh, repeated the question. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something like, you know, I'm not going to answer that right now, but you know, come back to me before the book comes out and, and maybe I'll answer your question uh, later, right? Which is just sort of your classic, like, I didn't do the reading and I need to uh, figure out a way to get the professor off my back. And we never heard back, Alex, surprisingly. It's about. weird. You know, I thought I was really, really hopeful that we'd get <laughs> yeah. down there. You'd get it, yeah. All right. So, guys, let, let's go to, to the most, I think, the most dramatic 
part of the book, which is January 6th and the period around uh, January 6th, both before and after. And I want to focus on uh, one aspect of it uh, with both Kevin McCarthy and, and Mitch McConnell and the sort of head-snapping sort of shift uh, from both of them, both of them believing that uh, invoking the 25th Amendment to possibly remove Trump after the, the, the riot on uh, January 6th, uh, and both of them believing that Trump could be impeached and convicted by the Senate. And then, of course, a few le- weeks later, uh, McCarthy is is uh, posing with uh, Trump in Mar-a-Lago. As you guys point out, uh, today, Mitch McConnell is saying that if Trump is the Republican nominee in 2024, he will, quote, absolutely support him. So you guys must have done a lot of thinking about how a shift like that takes place and what it says about this moment uh, in our politics Clearly, ambition is a big part of it, but but try to explain that for us. J-Mart, you start. Sure. I mean, I, look, I think it's, it's not more complicated than a lot of members of Congress uh, who are basically deferring to their voters and taking their cues rather than leading their voters. And not too much to say that they're scared of their voters, at least their, their perceived base. You know, we have this scene that Alex and I were so struck by in which right after the 6th, I think it's on the 11th of January, 2021, he speaks up at a a GOP conference meeting. This is the entire House GOP. And he doesn't defend Trump. In fact, he says that there should be some level of accountability. But then he goes on to say something really, really candid. He says, you know, the voters back in my district, when I bring up accountability, he said, quote, they, they go ballistic and quote, they say, where in the hell is the accountability starting with Hillary Clinton? And, and he cites Hunter Biden and other conservative media uh, scandals. And I think that tells you a lot. I think we're living in a siloed information age and a lot of the sort of GOP primary voters either don't know much or just don't really care about Donald Trump's transgressions and are much more focused and agitated by what they perceive as the excesses and the lack of accountability for the other side. And that's what, what drives so much of the voters and therefore drives a lot of members of the House GOP. So speaking of that other party, the Democratic Party, it also features in the book. It's not just about about Donald Trump. I'm reminded often of that old Will Rogers quote, I don't belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And I'm curious what your assessment is of Biden as against the way Trump is controlling his party. Your uh, book has some pretty interesting stories about Biden's, let's call it perplexity at how to handle people like Kirsten Cinema and yeah. other members of his party. Yeah, I mean, I think perplexity is is one of a number of words you could use for uh, his <laughs> feelings towards Kirsten Cinema. Um, but look, if, if Trump's approach to the Republican Party is to try to dominate it uh, in one fashion or another, Biden has taken really an approach of trying to accommodate uh, and uh, sort of internally triangulate uh, within the Democratic a coalition that he doesn't have a sense is never displayed within the scope of our book, a sense that he can command uh, the Democratic Party to go in one direction or another. And it's one of the things that uh, becomes an enormous roadblock to his agenda and self-imposed roadblock to his agenda, that his theory of how you govern in this big, sprawling, complicated party 
that, by the way, has only gotten more complicated because it now includes all these folks who deserted the Republican Party uh, in the Trump era, uh, who are demographically and socioeconomically really different uh, from the voters who uh, Joe Biden grew up with as his base. That his theory of how to do that is, is to sort of try to take the measure of uh, where uh, AOC and Pramila Jayapal and the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucuses uh, over here, uh, and where uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are over here, and then try to weave your way forward somewhere in between those polls. And sometimes that means within a single piece of legislation, and sometimes it means with a sequence of pieces of legislation. We'll do infrastructure over here uh, for Joe and Kirsten. Uh, we'll do Build Back Better over here for uh, a different group of people. Uh, but what you never really get in his uh, campaign or in his first year as president is the sort of you know, what I think David Axelrod uh, would call like the MRI for, uh, for his political soul, that at the end of the day, if you can only do one, one kind of thing, if you have to govern either as a conciliator or as a progressive, a bold, uh, uh, transformative progressive president, what are you going to do? Uh, and he tries to basically do it all. Uh, and those end up being a sort of, in, you know, mutually contradictory, mutually undermining impulses. Just picking up on that, because I thought one sort of fascinating account in, in the book was the way Biden sort of flipped after he gets the infrastructure bill and the Republicans have signed on and he's got a bipartisan you know, Bill, he can celebrate, can show he's brought the parties together. He gets hammered by the left, by the progressives. This won't do it. This isn't enough. We need the build back better, social spending, all that. And then he flips and he says, after signing, after the signing ceremony, he says, yeah, no, he says before the signing ceremony, I'm not going to sign it after the passage. He says, I'm not going to sign it until I get both on the plate. Republicans well, and Michael, it's, it's not yeah. just the left that sort of jumps all over him on that, or the the sort of activist left as as we talk about it colloquially. You know, Nancy Pelosi, after Joe Biden goes down to the a driveway in front of the White House with Republican senators and and, and centrist Democrats and announces the infrastructure package, Pelosi goes out uh, and whacks that as like woefully insufficient and not interested in moving that through the House unless it's paired uh, with this other thing. And when we uh, interviewed Pelosi, one of our interviews with Pelosi for the book, uh, we asked her, "Did you give Biden a heads up?" that you were going to do that. Uh, and she literally giggled and said, no, 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 I just I just said it, right? And that's a pretty big sort of political rebuke to a president who's been her longtime uh, political partner. He is uh, sort of whipsawed back and forth and allows himself to get whipsawed back and forth between, yes, the sort of organized uh, left-wing faction in the House caucus, but also sort of establishment liberals like Nancy Pelosi, who say, give me a break with this infrastructure thing. Uh, that is like below the price of admission. But to, but here's uh, the thing. They didn't right? have the votes, right? They didn't have, the they had this pay for for the Build Back Better, for the for the more expansive well, social they passed and, it in the House. And well, they, yeah. And they, and they had a, a chance of getting something out of the Senate. I mean, look, Manchin put down on paper what he would do and gave it to Schumer in the summer of 2021. So Who just ignored it. Uh, they had a possibility. Schumer ignored. Schumer ignored what Manchin gave him, right. and never and never even told the White House. Never even told the White House because they, they, meaning Schumer and the White House, were convinced they could get Joe Manchin to do something bigger, and they could just push him. He would do a bit more. And I think sort of the the perfect became the enemy of the good, and then they wound up not even getting uh, what they would call the good. Um, and you mentioned 
you know, uh, Pelosi, or at least Alex did, I mean, you can really trace her dissatisfaction with Biden in the White House over the course of this book, because she, she, you know, I think has so much in common with Biden, obviously both Catholics from the Northeast who were uh, roughly the same age, kind of silent generation figures, traditional uh, liberals. Uh, but, you know, she has her real frustrations with the White House. And by the end of the book, I think she is deeply discontent. I think in part because she saw Build Back Better as the crowning jewel of her own career. And now she, you know, is likely going to be um, headed to retirement here without getting that bill passed. And I think that was deeply frustrating uh, to her. In fact, she's so exasperated as we report in the book, she takes matters into her own hands and basically takes over the cinema and mansion accounts from Schumer himself and tries to sort of work cinema and mansion and tries to sort of play the Italian Catholic card with mansion and, and, and tries to sort of like win them over because she's so desperate at this point. And, um, we, we, we went to press earlier this year. Uh, Pelosi was just you know, deeply, deeply frustrated with, with Biden. And I, I'm not sure that that has been fully resolved yet. So, so if you guys had to sort of pinpoint the political weakness on Biden's uh, part or flaw, what is it? I mean, is it a lack of decisiveness? Is it an inability to control warring factions in his own White House? What's the real problem there? So I think there are a number of sort of obviously structural challenges from within the Democratic Party that he has not been able to master. And we've talked about a bunch of them. But to me, uh, and I say this, I think this was partly clear at the time we were writing the book. I think it's clearer with the benefit of, you know, at least the modest hindsight uh, that we have now that he was, you know, there was this sort of atmosphere of hubris in the spring of 2021, where uh, he and a lot of other Democrats thought, you know, he passed the rescue plan. It's a, you know, we have a very, very slim majority, but boy, have we shown uh, how we can make it work. Uh, COVID is receding. The economy is roaring back. Uh, we have the wind at our backs politically. Let's go really, really big. And what really, really big came to mean for much of the party was like three to six trillion dollars in scale for a, a sweeping New Deal uh, style uh, social agenda that never had the votes uh, in the Senate to pass. Right. And I think that, you know, if you could pinpoint, I think the one, I think the single biggest flawed political assumption on the part of the Biden White House was that, you know, by mid to late 2021, the country was going to be uh, feeling that happy days are here again. Uh, and I think the single biggest sort of tactical legislative error was allowing this process to unfold with Build Back Better, where they never quite said what was in the legislation. They never quite said what was out of the legislation. They never quite said what their own bottom line was uh, in terms of a dollar figure. They allowed everybody to project onto it what their own uh, greatest or more modest aspirations were. And in the meantime, you have a, a relatively clear path to get a deal with 50 votes in the Senate for an infrastructure bill that is a pretty big deal and a trillion dollars plus in climate spending, uh, maybe childcare spending, other kinds of social services that in any context in modern American politics would be a colossal achievement. But you never quite decide what's in, what's out. You let expectations get out of control, and then you wind up with a nothing, right? And I think that the, if you could do it all over again as Biden, 
And, you know, we have this scene in the book where uh, Biden blurts out in an Oval Office meeting with a number of members of Congress that, you know, Kirsten Sinema only wants to do $1.1 trillion uh, in spending, something that she had told him in confidence. And he says that as though that's like a miserly figure, right, when it's a giant, giant uh, piece of legislation. If they had kind of taken yes for an answer and been willing to really piss off members of their own party whose standard for success was uh, like $6 trillion, they would have gotten a lot more than zero. So scrolling back real quickly to January 6th, if we can sure. kind of begin at the beginning again, or maybe it's in the middle. One of the themes that's really interesting is that in addition to the Republican kind of pivot away from concern over January 6th is the persistent inability of the Democrats to make it a real issue and to make it stick. Yet to many kind of, let's call it academics or outside observers, January 6th seems like such a pivotal moment in American history, such a dramatic and frightening moment. Yet the Democrats haven't been able to capitalize on it. The Republicans have pivoted away from it. Why is this something that just doesn't seem to stick as a crucial moment for American democracy? It's a great question. I think it has a lot to do with the, the short American attention span. I think it has a lot to do with fractured, fragmented media and information sources. And I think it has a lot to do with the understandable uh, demand of the here and now. And by the here and now, I mean the issues that are affecting American lives day in, day out, where they live. And by that, I mean clearly inflation and COVID are the two dominant issues that are shaping people's lives. And that's just the fact uh, of the current situation that we're in. It's why Republicans are hoping to run on those issues in the midterms, and it's why Biden and every Democrat is looking for a way to respond to those challenges. So I think it's understandable. Um, but you're right, though. It does lead to the sort of bifurcation in which there's a lot of concern among uh, writers and thinkers in America about the state of American democracy, but it's just not that animating of an issue for a lot of uh, rank and file voters. Yet this is sort of, you know, the central theme of your book. I mean, you start out talking about how we're in the midst of a political emergency in this country in which we have two parties that are not merely adversaries, but enemies in a domestic cold war that had started to run hot. What is our way out of this, if there is any route? Alex, what's the way out, man? Tell you. <laughs> yeah, we're going to add that in a, a sort of afterward uh, <laughs> that's, the edition. That's, of, okay. Right? And, and, and here's and here's how we get out. No, look, I think if we knew the answer, um, uh, then you uh, somebody else would have come right? up with it first. Yeah. Um, look, I don't think there's an obvious way out. I do think that uh, one of the recurring themes in the book that I wouldn't say this is sort of cause for optimism of any particular kind, but you know, one reason to believe that this moment of emergency won't uh, last forever in this specific form uh, is that both parties are headed for an enormous uh, generational transition. You know, the Democrats are governed overwhelmingly by uh, people in their late 70s and early 80s uh, in the leadership tier of the party. On the Republican side, uh, Donald Trump is obviously in his mid-70s and culturally you know, really more of a throwback than that, that his references are uh, like 1950s, 1960s uh, era pop culture. And like the most current cultural references he has are like Mike Tyson in the 80s kind of stuff, right? Uh, and this is obviously going to change at some point uh, for actuarial reasons, if not, if for no others. 
Um, but I do think that there's a real reason to believe that uh, the parties are going to go through a sort of internal reckoning about what they really want to be and how they really want to operate um, in a more comprehensive way than they have so far. Because up to this point, and even over the last a year and a half of the Biden administration, they have been kind of grinding their way forward with a leadership structure and a set of ideas that are fundamentally not up to date for our times. But I'm not sure that this generational transformation is for the better. It seems to me as likely, well, certainly on both sides, with gerrymandering and you know the, the level of activism, it's likely that the squad and progressives are going to increase their numbers in the uh, next Congress, even if the Democrats lose control. We're going to have more progressives. And you look at who will be taking over on the Republican side in leadership, if it's a Republican-controlled House, younger people, but not necessarily ones more open to reconciliation with the other side. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And, and to be clear, it's not that I'm predicting there's going to be some generational uh, a change that will then drive uh, two parties uh, closer to the political center. But I think part of what's so toxic in the way our politics works right now is that we're locked into a certain set of battle lines that don't really seem to move, no matter what the external uh, inputs are, right? The country's been through a once in a century pandemic, a global economic a collapse, a national reckoning on race, a disputed election, uh, and, and the battle lines don't seem to have moved a whole lot. Uh, and there's a rigidity in our system that when you look around the world, there are a lot of countries that, that in the middle of the last decade experienced this a sort of surge of right-wing populism, but their systems were uh, dynamic enough that they either tried that out and then were able to judge the results or they were able to have the fight uh, and, and one side or the other would uh, win. But we, we just seem sort of stuck in this zone where like, no, it's, it's sort of a trench war here, right? Um, and I do think that there's reason to believe that once you get a new set of leaders, it's not that things necessarily get better, um, but they get different. And maybe you sort of have out the fight in a little bit more of a dynamic way that you know enables somebody to uh, get an upper hand and actually get some stuff done and be judged on the basis of results. But until then, you're not very hopeful that our kind of Let's say not just our, our kind of political culture, but our political media establishment can figure out how to deal with these problems. In particular, I'm talking about really Trump here, because I, one of the things I was struck by in the book. How do you change it? I mean, like, what's the uh, how does the fever break? I mean, how, you know, how, yeah. do, how do you how do you uh, to borrow uh, a 17th metaphor? I mean, how, how do you put the toothpaste back in the tube where for living in? this siloed sort of information culture. I don't know, like tomorrow, if people were to like go back to getting their news from AP copy in the print edition of their like local daily and watching their local news plus PBS at night, and maybe it would change, but I just don't see how like Facebook is going to stop being the biggest force there is for, for news flow. Okay. Know? Well, but let's talk about that for a second. You guys are two of the best political reporters in the country. Trump probably has the best shot of being the Republican nominee in 2024 uh, and could win. No way of knowing. How should the media cover Trump now? Uh, what should we be doing differently? How should we cover him? How sh what should we cover? What should we not cover? How do you guys think about that now? And do you look back at coverage of Trump from, say, 2015 on and see that there are things that we can learn from, um, from, from any mistakes that we've made. 
That's a really big uh, question. So I'm going to try to just uh, take off like a couple small bites of it. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that was liberating for us in writing this book, uh, it was a challenge, but, but a liberating challenge was feeling like so many of the fundamental traits of Donald Trump as a politician and political leader and cultural figure are so well known at this point that we need to provide information that's going to be eye-opening to people, even within that context, right? So if we were to tell like another hundred stories of him thro throwing a Diet Coke at a staffer uh, or him saying something like ludicrously offensive uh, in a private meeting, I'm not sure that we would like have people saying, holy shit, that's not the Donald Trump I know. You know, there's stuff that we have in the book that I think we would have expected, even within that context, you know, we have uh, information in the book about Trump's campaign, poll testing the idea of expelling a Chinese nationals working in uh, science and technology in the United States on uh, mass, right? That by any standard is a scandalous and shocking, deeply offensive idea. Uh, people don't seem terribly shocked by it. So I think that going into 2024, uh, I, I don't think that there's any need to uh, sort of, uh, you know, hedge the kind of language you use about Trump or sort of tiptoe around the edges of what we all know him to be, which is a really dangerous figure uh, in American politics. But at the same time, I think you do need to keep on telling people stuff that they don't already know about him or they're just going to feel like I've heard this song before. Right. And just uh, real quick, I think going back to uh, 2015, to me, the story of, of, of media errors with Donald Trump uh, goes back so much further uh, than 2015. And the, the uh, hair shirt act that we do in the media about coverage of his, of his presidential campaign the first time, it so misses the point in, in the sort of culpability of the entire media culture, including the entertainment media, in building him up as this character for our, this titanic figure uh, in business, this you know formidable man of affairs uh, who pops up in basically every piece of pop culture from the 1980s forward, when it was also clear from the 1980s forward that he was a pretty big racist with some really offensive ideas uh, about the role of the state and law enforcement who uh, had multiple run-ins with the law himself. Uh, and most Americans knew him as the guy from The Apprentice, right? And no, it's really I tough to work against that when you're reporting on a political campaign. I mean, if I can just jump in here, because this is obviously something we've talked about a lot, the American voters had their eyes wide open about Donald Trump in 2016. I mean, have there been a, a American candidates for president who were better known <laughs> and well-established than Donald Trump? And I mean, not just because of his fame and celebrity, but my goodness, the reporting in 2015 and 2016 about who he was, what he said, what he did, what he wanted to do, it was so out of the open. He called for a Muslim ban in November of 2015. That wasn't hidden. I mean, Americans knew all this. They priced it in and they still uh, chose to vote for him. And I did no amount of coverage like no, no tough language and stories is going to change that, that fact, right? I agree a hundred percent. There was so many stories about his bankruptcies, about his business failures, about, you know, his outrageous proposals and the Access Hollywood tape. Let's not forget that. It was all out there. I guess the question is, how do you break through to that substantial portion of the country, nearly half, that voted for the guy, even a second time they voted. I, I guess to me, that's a, that's a question for Democrats, right? Like, I think that we're telling the truth about Donald Trump and we're doing it uh, on as many platforms and with as much reporting as we can. But are we telling, are, are we 
as as tough as we should be on the Democrats as well, because that I think a big part of of the Trump base is the grievance that we're biased. We focus on Trump's failures and we ignore excesses, hypocrisies by the other side. Well, I would say two things on that. I think one, there are differences. The Democratic Party's leaders aren't calling for a, a ban on all Muslim migrants coming to America. So like it would be irresponsible to present them uh, as hashtag both sides. Secondly, I would say, look no further than this book. And you tell us after you read this book, if we're not, I think, tough and uh, skeptical of, of you know both political parties for different reasons. And if you still feel that way after you read this book, then I think you need to ask yourself about your own bias. I'm guessing that, that Isikoff is, for Isikoff, Exhibit A, and I don't disagree with this, is and it's apples and oranges in a sense, but it's Hunter Biden and the way we covered or didn't cover Hunter Biden at the time that that story broke. There was reason to be skeptical. There was reason to look into whether there was Russian disinformation in, involved. But then Twitter, you know, uh, you know what Twitter did. I mean, I think that has enormous legs in the Trump world and deserving of getting attention. Of the fact that a story was suppressed in the midst of a political campaign by major social media and Democrats saying Russian disinformation, Russian disinformation, when there was no evidence of that. I think that's a fair critique that there, that there should have been more rigorous coverage of the president's uh, uh, son in, in 2020 and to this day, actually, I think it's a fair critique uh, that there could be more coverage of his son. I also think, and I know that like there's been a sustained uh, half century long effort by the forces of the American right to like delegitimize the mainstream media and whatever you do or don't do is going to like never going to matter because they actually want to delegitimize the, uh, the coverage and that that's been a sort of story that we can trace back to Nixon Agnew. Um, I think both things can be true, Mike. And, and I would, I mean, I would just agree so strongly with the notion that I think there's been this really unfortunate cultural shift on the part of readers to the left of center, where they believe that if you're being tough on the Democratic Party, you are enabling uh, Donald Trump. And I think the, you, you need to look no further than the Hunter Biden story for why that's not really true, right? That you can suppress that story for as long as you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, the facts are what they are. And the U.S. attorney is going to do what he's going to do. And I'm not sure that it does anybody any favors for it to be some giant shock when it turns out that the president's son may have been involved in some stuff that it was not really appropriate for the president's uh, son to be involved. And I think there's a sense of, I think that one of the uh, sort of toxic cultural things that has happened in the Democratic Party uh, in the Trump era is this sense that the other guy is so uniquely pernicious that how can you go after us for you know anything, right? And the reality is that in a two-party system, you know, people ought to be skeptical of both sides again for different reasons, and both sides do need to hold themselves to a pretty high standard. And uh, uh, you know, there's that old line that Democrats like to use, you know, sort of discontent Democrats like to use uh, that Republicans are the party of bad ideas, Democrats are the party of no ideas. Like having no ideas is still pretty uh, uh, bad, right? That like bad results versus no results, neither of those serves the American people uh, terribly well, even if you take that uh, truism on its own terms. Well, I was just going to follow up in terms of the kind of media coverage and the lessons, you know, the the two of you got a lot of criticism at the beginning of the uh, release of your book for holding on to, I suppose, breaking news and putting it in a book rather than publishing it the minute you got it. 
is that a, a how do you how do you situate that criticism amidst your kind of understanding of the way reporters should cover Trump and our current democratic crisis? Well, I think I mean just to to take the, the immediate issue first. Look, you know, we're not going to get into sort of case by case sourcing agreements or whatever, but like as anybody who's written a book can confirm, there are certain kinds of materials and certain kinds of recollections and comments that people will share for the purposes, you know, what they see as the purposes of history that they don't want to see on Twitter 15 minutes from now or in the newspaper the next day or the next week. Um, and I think that that's a consistent feature of a lot of the material we gathered for this book. You know, I think you all know for yourselves that if you have a scoop of that scale as a reporter, uh, that Kevin McCarthy said this, uh, and if you're able to report that in real time, there's no way you would sit on that, right? That's a career-making story. Uh, so even if you think uh, our reporters are just motivated by totally venal purposes and their own advancement, uh, like even on those terms, it wouldn't make sense to do that. Um, but you know, because you gather the material and the way you gather it for a book, uh, you're able to tell a different kind of story at a different kind of depth. So let's look to the future a little bit. We've we're going to have the midterms. Uh, Right now, the polls do look good for the Republicans. Right. And at that point, the day after Election Day, everybody's going to be focused on one question on the Democratic side. Is Joe Biden running again? Yeah. Uh, and enormous pressure <laughs> on the White House to get an answer to that, because there's a lot of people who want to start planning for 2024 if he's not. What's the answer going to be? No, it's so true. I think the the clock has already started ticking, but that that ticking is going to be out loud the day after the midterms, Michael. I bet. Uh, when is Biden going to decide? And I, it's such a constant conversation among Democrats now, just below the surface. But is Biden going to run? Should he run? And what do we do if he doesn't run? I think those three elements are sort of dominant right now. Look. Joe Biden has a history of putting off decisions he does not want to make. And if the answer is no, I think he's going to put that off. I think if the answer is yes, it could be sooner. And I think that that would give Democrats some relief, at least some relief as to whether or not he was going to run, perhaps not relief as to the actual, the actual decision itself. But if he doesn't go, my sense from our reporting, we get at this in the book, because it was clear by the end of 21, there's going to be a pretty long line of aspiring Democrats who are going to get in this race. I think governors, senators, members of the cabinet, I think it's a pretty big roster of folks who will look at look at running in 24. And it's all you know, against the shadow of Trump. And I think you can already see it now that there's going to be an urgency about figuring out their nominee of as long as the sort of threat of Trump still exists. I tend to think Biden today is inclined to run. I think if you if you asked him, and we asked all of his advisors this, they would say if he's healthy, he'll, he'll run. But we're in May of 21. I'm sorry, I'm May of 22, rather. I think a lot can change. But I think today uh, he's inclined to run. But there's no question that there, there is deep anxiety among Democrats uh, as to who their standard bearer is going to be and whether or not it should be Biden. Again. And you've got some really interesting reporting towards the end about the dissatisfaction inside the White House uh, about uh, Vice President Harris yeah. and her performance. And I also found this really fascinating. And her frustration with them, too. I and her frustration with them. And Ron Klain's role, chief of staff, who apparently played a big role in picking Harris in the first place and was really 
working hard to uh, buck her up and push back uh, against the internal dissatisfaction. Tell us about that. Right. I mean, this is one of the things that I think people in the White House have observed about Ron Klain is that he sure seems very protective of this vice president, perhaps because he helped uh, put her there in the first place. That his argument to Biden during the VP selection process was basically play it safe, uh, choose someone who has run for president themselves uh, before already, even if she didn't do a terrific job at that, uh, she's been through the paces in a way that is safer than if you chose, you know, a Gretchen Whitmer or a Susan Rice, who has not been on that kind of stage before. But look, uh, even Klein in the book uh, is uh, depicted uh, giving Harris some pretty tough love at points during uh, the first year of the administration, telling her that it was a real mistake for her to hold uh, her Latin American uh, portfolio at arm's length, to try to be so choosy about which assignments she takes and which assignments uh, she doesn't take. Because, you know, and keep in mind that uh, Klein knows a thing or two about uh, advising vice presidents, having uh, been uh, as close as you get to Vice President Biden, Vice President Gore. The way you succeed as a vice president is you take something, you own it, you take something with both both hands and you own it, and you show that you know what you're doing uh, in government, even if that particular assignment, uh, frankly, kind of sucks, right? And uh, that's not something that we've seen uh, from Vice President Harris. I think that if she is going to emerge at some point in the next year as the presumptive Democratic standard bearer for 24, something big would have to change in how the party sees her role in Washington. She would need to have a much clearer story to tell about what she's actually been doing in the Biden Does Klain stay on after the midterms? I think the expectation is that, is that that's not likely. And that you know, we've already seen some significant staff turnover, you know, Jen Psaki, Cedric Richmond, uh, other senior people. And I think there's likely to be a more rather than less of that. Who replaces Klain? Great question. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's TBD, but you know, Biden likes comfort food around him. It's hard to see Biden picking the chief of staff. He does not have a sort of durable relationship with guys. What about on the Republican side? What but, are the, I, yeah. I, just real ahead. fast, very notable, yeah. Anita Dunn's coming back into the White House yeah. uh, once again. They sort of announced that recently. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. On the Republican side, should uh, Trump run again in 2024? What are the dynamics there in terms of Republicans who will run against him? You know, some of the names that you hear are people uh, sure. who are close to him, were close to him in 2016 and throughout his presidency, or people like Ron DeSantis, you know, who, who have for whom he was a, patro- a political patron. So how do they uh, how do they go against Trump? So I. There's, there's two versions of the Republican field in 24. There's the version if Trump runs and the version if Trump doesn't run. And I think if he does run, it, it's, a, it's smaller. I think it includes a handful of people like Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, maybe Liz Cheney, who are just avowedly anti-Trump. And I think it includes a few folks who are less uh, openly anti-Trump, obviously, believe that the party could be looking for a, a Trump alternative that is not avowedly anti Trump. Who is that? I think Chris Christie would, would certainly love to do it. And I think even Mike Pence, if Trump runs, would potentially give it a look, potentially. I think it's a lot bigger field, guys, if Trump is not in the race. I think you'll, you'll get something more like 2016, where you'll just have this long <laughs> roster of governors and senators who would, who would dive in. So you don't see DeSantis running against Trump? My sense is that he would not run against Trump today and that he would be more inclined to go if Trump is not in the field. But that's May of 22. Right. So that, that could change. And he's a pretty young guy. I mean, he's you know, mid 40s. So he, 
he obviously has some time here. A couple other names to throw out. Glenn Youngkin is worth watching. He's sure. setting yep. up a national political organization, and he's got the fact that yeah. he was able to navigate that, you know, cool. between the Trump. Spoken and like and a former and... Richmond correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad some people have long memories around here. He can you know, look. I think he's very much interested. There's a reason why. Uh, he gives so many interviews to Fox News as a first term governor of the Commonwealth. Uh, it's not just because he's trying to get his agenda passed through the state capitol in Richmond. I think he obviously has his eyes on national office. Thanks a lot. The book is This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future. Anybody interested in American politics, this should be their next read. Jonathan and Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you.